Welcome to You News, the podcast using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Tuesday, June 29th. I'm Lorraine Cáceres. These are today's headlines. Eleven people have been confirmed dead as new evidence begins to emerge about the condition of the residential building that collapsed near Miami. Rescue teams working around the clock in hazardous conditions, still searching for survivors. A massive heat wave punishing the Pacific Northwest, roads buckling from the high temperatures, health concerns on the rise for residents coping with the extreme heat. And the Delta variants prompting new warnings about those who remain unvaccinated here in the U.S., while one major city brings back indoor mask restrictions even for those who have received their COVID-19 shots. This and much more today on U News, recorded live in our newsroom in Miami. Eleven people have been confirmed dead as new evidence begins to emerge about the condition of the residential building that collapsed near Miami. Rescue teams are working around the clock in hazardous conditions, still searching for survivors. A massive heat wave punishing the Pacific Northwest, road buckling from the high temperatures, health concerns on the rise for residents coping with the extreme heat. And the Delta variants prompting new warnings about those who remain unvaccinated here in the U.S., while one major city brings back indoor mask restrictions even for those who have received their COVID-19 shots. The details and more today on U News. Hello and welcome to U News for Tuesday, June 29th. I'm Lorraine Cáceres. Thank you for being here. It's now day six of search and rescue efforts following the collapse of a 12-story condominium building in Surfside, Florida. The remains of 11 people have now been found, while another one, another 150 people remain missing. Specialized teams frantically searching for survivors, family members desperate to find out more about their loved ones as we learn more about the condition of that building in the months before the deadly collapse. Day six of an exhausting and complicated search. I am cautiously optimistic. I always have hope. Uh, part of our job is to bring hope also to the community. Um, but with you know, all the science that I've studied and everything going on, I do know that time is ticking and all the different variables that go into the possibilities of somebody surviving uh, change and are extremely dynamic. Overnight rescue teams dealing with falling pieces from the part of the Champlain Tower that is still standing. The constant rain making the debris slippery, one rescue worker falling 25 feet. Definitely with the weather, it, it's, it enhances, you know, with the water as we're, you know, making entry, as we're tunneling to certain areas, looking like I mentioned, when we find a void, and then now we kind of kind of want to go further, deeper, to see if there's a deeper void or something different that we find. And there's definitely a concern with the rain and now the debris and possibly sliding. So, I mean, it's an extremely dangerous situation. Hundreds gathering Monday night to honor those lost. Many families trying to hold on to hope, but also realizing that as the days go by, the chances of finding their loved ones diminish. A miracle can happen, yes, but we have to be very realistic. 
you know, we have three amazing, amazing children. They have, you know, their significant others that are here supporting them too. We, you know, some, I'm embarrassed almost even to admit it. We thought we had the perfect family. Meanwhile, the investigation into how and why the tower collapsed continues. The Miami Herald publishing pictures taken by a pool contractor just 36 hours before the collapse. He says the lobby and pool area looked clean and well-maintained, but the parking garage was another story, telling the paper there was standing water, cracking concrete and severely corroded rebar under the pool. We're also learning the Condo Association president sent all the owners a letter three months ago informing them that repairs were urgent. The concrete deterioration is accelerating. The roof situation got much worse, so extensive roof repairs had to be incorporated. When you can visually see the concrete spalling, cracking, that means that the rebar holding it together is rusting and deteriorating beneath the surface. You look at the building, and you look at the, 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 the North Tower, they need money right. to fix a lot of things. There was leaks in the garage, there was cracks on the balconies. So, yes, you need the money to fix it, you know, but unfortunately, it was right. The White House now pushing for a detailed investigation. He does believe there should be an investigation uh, and that uh, FEMA, a, a number of the resources FEMA is sending to the ground, uh, building science experts uh, to the scene, officials from the National Institutes of Standards and Technology, officials from OSHA uh, and the FBI, they've all been deployed to Surfsi uh, Surfside uh, under their own authorities um, to help participate and provide expertise in that, in that effort. So certainly we want to play any constructive role we can play with federal resources in getting to the bottom of it and preventing it from happening in the future. And in the wake of this tragedy, owners of units in the Champlain Towers South building have filed a class action lawsuit against the Condo Association. Joining us by phone to discuss this is their attorney, Brad Sohn. Thanks for being here, Brad. What are your clients alleging in this lawsuit? Thank you very much, Serena. The, the clients in this lawsuit are alleging that the association knew or should have known uh, of a number of these things um, in advance such that they should have taken action, lives would have been saved, property would have been saved. So repairs had been identified in that 2018 report, repairs that were needed. And according to the Wall Street Journal, residents were told in a letter in April of this year of the rapid deterioration of the building. What have the residents you're representing told you about the board's sense of urgency when it comes to these repairs? Well, there's there's frustration and anger. Um, uh, there's there's at least one family that um, has has not unjustifiably uh, demanded that that criminal action be be looked into as well, investigation at the very least. Um, I, I, it's it's I can't impress enough upon you know your audience that that even as a lawyer when I when I hear what you just referenced, knowing what the content of that Wall Street Journal article said with with reference to that letter, uh, just how alarming it is that, that people knew that this was a very, very significant problem, uh, yet didn't take the actions that were needed. And obviously, we, we all have to live with the result now. And speaking of that, if the board knew of repairs, but were they, were they acting just too slow? Is, is this negligence or human error? I, I, I 
find it to be astounding negligence uh, to have had access to information going back nearly three years and not actually moving forward to take steps to fix it sooner. Brad, have you guys been able to establish if the condo association know that the building could collapse, that this was a real possibility? Well, I think right now it's premature to get into that. Um, we feel very comfortable with the allegations in our lawsuit to date, but uh, I anticipate that, that there will be additional defendants named as well as additional factual support um, that will be forthcoming. And for that matter, we have already undertaken uh, to do a, a very significant amount of something called discovery, which is making information requests to be provided under verified form, both to the, the defendant that we sued, the association, but also to uh, engineering and consulting firms and so forth that we believe have valuable information to uh, claims vital to our, our clients. And Brad, before I move on to my following question, I want to just clarify something or try to understand. So you're basically telling us that a lot of the unit owners including the uh, people that you're representing, the owners that you're representing, didn't understand or were never notified of the urgency that these repairs meant. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. Can you please explain to us, if you know, who are the association, who comprises the association? Is it all owners of uh, units themselves? And how are they doing? Um, have you heard from the association at all? Uh, were they affected by the collapse? That, that's a very good question. I think um, there's, there's multiple pieces to who constitutes the association. Um, but as far as the day-to-day -day operations of the association, it's, it's really more helpful, I think, to think about it as, a, as the law firm that's, that's running those, those operations. So um, obviously our, our thoughts and, 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 you know, for that matter, our actions, everything that, that we can do both as lawyers and as people um, are with everybody who was a victim um, in, in this just horrific tragedy. Um, but uh, our focus when we talk about getting information from the association really, really is from uh, the, the law firm that, that has those documents and, and that was responsible for the day-to-day -day operations of the condominium. Okay, Brad, and before you go, the main plaintiff in the lawsuit, Manuel Dresner, was a resident in the collapsed tower. He owned and lived in Unit 1009. How is he doing, and how did he escape the collapse? Well, fortunately, uh, it's a sad twist. He, he was getting medical treatment uh, elsewhere, so he, he was able to, to avoid it simply by not being there. But it's really a remarkable thing that, that um, significant medical treatment for, for an illness may have, have saved his life. Um, and, and obviously, I just can't stress enough, our, our thoughts are with, with all of the involved. Well, thank you so much, Brad Stone, attorney representing a Champlain Tower South resident. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And the Surfside building collapse has drawn attention to older high-rise buildings dotting the South Florida coast, vulnerable to beach erosion and coastal flooding. Joining us to talk about this is Peter, Peter Saluski. He's the with Condo Vultures, a Miami real estate consultancy firm Welcome to You News, Peter. In Miami-Dade County alone, there are about 25,000 units along the Atlantic coast, according to a study you recently conducted. That's roughly $3 trillion worth of property. What are the concerns right now for this area? 
Well, I think the concerns are, first and foremost, people are worried, can they live in their home um, if they, if it is an oceanfront condo, and is it going to collapse? Now, I'm not an engineer. Uh, I do statistics, and I do data. Generally speaking, I've never seen any situation like this, uh, and I've been down here since 1993. So anybody who's out there, I would say, generally speaking, you're probably going to be okay in your place. However, based on the year that your building was constructed and whether or not it's coming up on the 40-year recertification or it's not coming up on that, that's something that you need to talk to your association. You need to have them go ahead and actually start to do some due diligence. Um, uh, the audience might not realize many members of associations, they're not experts in running buildings. They typically do it because uh, they want to put in place rules or they want to change things, but they're not qualified and they're not experts to make engineering decisions. These are situations where the uh, law firms that represent the associations and or the property management companies, which are third parties, they're the ones that should be advising the association members rather than the association members making the decision. So so, so at the end of the day, what, what I'm saying is there's a lot of different situations out there where there's a lot of confusion, but basically if your building is newer, you're probably going to be okay. If your building is older, you need to talk to your association, but more importantly, your law firm as well as your property management company. And owners of units in the Champlain Tower South had assessment fees ranging from $80,000 to $300,000, depending on the size of the unit. How unusual is that for South Florida condos? So to give you give you an idea, it's it's in the ballpark. It's not outrageous. Some of the issues that have been raised so far about flooding and other issues, that's all very common in many of these buildings. We did our study in 2014. We updated again in 2019. What I can tell you is there's about 139 projects, of which half of them were built before the 1990s, which means they're all pre-Andrew building code inspections and issues like that. So generally speaking, one of every two towers you look at on the Barrier Island, it's probably going to be one of these issues where it neither needs a 40-year recertification or it's recently completed them. The town of Surfside is small, but it has multiple high-rise towers along the coast with thousands of units. Does the town have a large enough building department to oversee these buildings? Well, to give you context, uh, you know, about 25,000 units dot the Atlantic on the Barrier Island. You're only looking at about 2,600 in Surfside. Surfside's a community of about 5,700 people. They don't have the budget in order to have the type of aggressive uh, building department you're probably going to find immediately to the south in Miami Beach or, more importantly, over the causeway in the city of Miami. So it's probably a situation there hasn't been a lot of development until more recently. These issues have never really occurred before, and therefore, the the uh, city commissioners and the leadership of that community, they probably thought everything was fine. If the, you know, if there's not an issue, why go ahead and spend more money on it? Now, I think we're starting to see that uh, planning and zoning is a critical part of our local economy, as well as the coffers for all these cities, the school board, and the county. That's how they generate the revenues in order to fill the potholes, pay the pensions, and pay for the police officers and firefighters. And I guess you answered partially the question, but how do you think this tragedy could reshape the condo market moving forward? Well, this is going to be critical. Anybody who buys a condo in South Florida, um, if it's an existing condo, you get three days to review a bunch of documents. And those documents talk about the financials. They talk about the rules of the building. They talk about a variety of other things. What they don't talk about is the safety of the building, the health of the building. 
thus far, there's no way to get an idea of whether or not a building is actually physically safe. Now, some people will say, well, yeah, but I'm buying a unit and I, I hired an inspector. Well, that inspector is looking at your unit. They're not looking at the overall structure. And why are they not doing it? Because when you go under contract, you have a three-day rescission period to opt out of your contract. Otherwise, the contract becomes non-refundable. So the timeline is set up in such a way where there's no way to really sort of do this. So therefore, it should fall on behalf of the association and or the state should mandate it. Well, thank you so much for the insight and for your time, Peter Soluski of Condo Vultures. Thank you. And now to brutal temperatures in the Pacific Northwest. Nearly 20 million people in that region under excessive heat warning. The temperature spikes causing dangerous conditions in many communities. Andrea Linares has the latest. A historic heat wave is bringing the hottest temperatures ever recorded in the Pacific Northwest. It feels like... Um I, Armageddon, it really does. Portland hitting 115 degrees Monday, shattering the city's all-time heat record for the third consecutive day. The high in the city this time of year averages in the 70s. The dangerous heat hitting a region accustomed to mild weather, where many people don't even have air conditioning. Heat is a stress on the body. It's a stress on the mind. It is uncomfortable to be hot for long periods of time. Historic heat is now also expanding cracks on roads, wreaking havoc and even forcing lane closures in western Washington highways. Many people say it's shocking to see heat damaging roadways. It's scary. I mean, you never know when you, you could be the one who falls into a sinkhole or a bridge collapse. Near the Canadian border, heat caused a hole to open up, requiring crews to make repairs. As extreme heat comes into areas around the country, concrete panels that are all do tend to buckle. Meanwhile, in Seattle, the mercury hit 106 degrees Monday, breaking that city's all-time heat record set just a day before. Right now, several hotels in the Seattle area are posting no vacancy signs as people book rooms just to stay cool. A U.S. Census Bureau survey says more than 50 percent of Seattle homes don't have AC. Medical experts say keep an eye out for nausea, headaches, lightheadedness, and muscle cramps. Washington State's Governor Jay Inslee says authorities are doing the best they can. We have opened up quite a number of cooling centers. We've expanded our capacity. You know, we had COVID restrictions on capacity of, a, of a, some of these centers, but we've We've set those aside so we can get more people into cooling centers. Adding that the source of the problem is climate change. We have to attack the source of this problem because this climate is changing so fast in my state. It is hurting the fundamental aspects of our culture and our economy. I talked to a couple farmers here. They are just terror stricken. They're going to lose their crop this year because of this heat. And more to the south, hot and dry conditions also fueling wildfires in California, including the so-called lava fire along the Oregon border. Washington State's Department of Transportation says it's only funded about half of what they need to keep roads in good repair, which officials say could have prevented the problems that we are now seeing. The big picture here is that the area has a lot of pavement that needs fixing, but there's limited funding available. In Miami, Florida, Andrea Linares, U News.
Thank you, Andrea, for that report. And meanwhile, on the East Coast, Tropical Storm Danny weakened to a tropical depression Monday night as it made its way inland over South Carolina. The storm had maximum sustained winds of 35 miles per hour, capping a turbulent day that saw the system fluctuate from a depression to a tropical storm and back to a depression. Manny Day made landfall as a tropical storm Monday evening on Pritchard's Island, South Carolina, just north of Hilton Head. And in Washington, the White House still pressing for final details on a massive in infrastructure deal with leaders in Congress. Those negotiations made even more vital as the nation witnesses a breakdown in public and private infrastructure. For more on the details and potential obstacles, let's go to Mariti Marungi, who spoke with White House National Climate Advisor Gina McCarthy. We have a deal. And... Uh... I think it's really important. President Biden's announced $1.2 trillion bipartisan infrastructure deal last week brought together 10 senators, five Democrats and five Republicans in a move that the president emphasized reflects consensus across the aisle, a rarity these days in the nation's capital. The deal would include massive investments in, among other things, public infrastructure repairs, public transit, clean drinking water, high-speed internet, and electric vehicles. Yunus spoke with White House National Climate Advisor Gina McCarthy on Friday about the proposed framework. And one of the things she was eager to highlight is the magnitude of the deal. It really represents not just a historic shift back to democracy, but it's also a historic investment um, more resources are going to be agreed, have been agreed to and will be expended than we've seen in terms of the last century. Biden also made a point to highlight the importance of integrating climate initiatives into an infrastructure deal, a point likely to receive pushback from GOP legislators and from progressive Democrats eager for climate policies to take center stage. The president's chief domestic climate advisor identified several key areas. Investments in clean transportation. So we're talking about investments in transit. We're talking about investments in electric bus. We're talking about investments in electric school buses for our kids. But as we've seen during the pandemic, even when the government mobilizes for the greater good, often Latino and black communities are left behind. McCarthy suggests that there will be a plan to get these dollars into historically marginalized communities. People will see this happening in their communities in short order and they will know that to the extent that we can as a country we're going to build in labor standards so that everybody gets a fair shake at a good paying job we're going to look to make sure that these investments accrue to these communities that have been left behind we are building in requirements for how that gets done but the deal faces familiar obstacles to get over the finish line including a skeptical senate minority leader Mitch McConnell. Caving completely in less than two hours? That's not the way to show you're serious about getting a bipartisan outcome. A challenge McCarthy acknowledged the administration is keenly aware of. Despite the obstacles ahead, the bipartisan deal brokered by President Biden is a step towards infrastructure investments that candidate Biden promised to pursue on the campaign trail. How much of a step remains to be seen. Marini Marungi, 
EU News. And on Capitol Hill, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi continues to push for an investigation into the January insurrection. Monday, Pelosi introduced a resolution to create a special committee, select committee, to look into the attack on Capitol Hill. Edwin Pitti has the details from Washington, D.C. Edwin? Lorraine, I can tell you that after Republicans blocked the creation of an independent commission to investigate the Capitol attack on January 6, Democrats are poised to move forward with an investigation this week. The vote will be right before Congress goes on recess. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi announced that she is creating a special committee to investigate the attack on the Capitol, saying, quote, we must seek the truth. Take a listen. The select committee is about our democracy about ensuring that the Capitol Dome remain a symbol of freedom, about preserving America's role as an emblem of resilience, determination, and hope. That is our purpose. That is what the Select Committee will be about, and that is about seeking and finding the truth. According to the legislation released by Pelosi, the new committee will have 13 members and the power to subpoena witnesses. Eight members will be appointed by Pelosi and five in consultation with House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. And there is no deadline to present their findings. Meanwhile, Kevin McCarthy said the speaker never talked to him about the committee. Pelosi has spent all the time and all these months playing politics with this. And now we're finding select committee will be more politics of what she wants to do. The FBI is the appropriate place to investigate. You shouldn't be involved in it. In any of the investigation, let the FBI do their work. The architect of the Capitol has $10 million to make sure the structure is protected. You've got a report here that tells you the failures of what has gone on. We watched Speaker Pelosi sit and fight over the scope and over the size and wanted to make it more partisan. I wouldn't expect anything different from her, but I don't think the outcome will be of best use to the, to the capital itself if you want to get down to the bottom of the answer. Reports suggest that many Republicans are concerned about social partisan probe because the majority of Democrats are likely to investigate Trump's role in the siege and the right-wing groups that were present that day. Pelosi insisted that the committee will investigate and report upon the facts and causes of the attack, saying that okay. the least they can do for the seven people who died during the after the riot, including the death of three Capitol Police officers, two of them committed suicide. Live in Washington, D.C., back to you, Lorraine. Thanks. More of you news after this short break. Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. The effects of COVID-19 will be felt for decades to come. Both parties are very far apart. Approximately 250,000 people have lost their lives. You news covers the news of your world. It makes it easy to understand. Your world, your news. You news on Fusion. Welcome back to You News. Health experts are adding to the chorus of calls warning about the Delta variant. They say this strain of COVID-19 spreads more easily and could be more dangerous. And as Grecia Lasta reports, whether you see an outbreak in your community or not may depend on where you live. This problem is not going away. Everyone should recognize this pandemic's not over. 
the virus hasn't gone. In fact, it's still mutating. The Delta variant that ravaged India has now been identified in more than 85 countries, including the U.S., which is why world leaders are working together to ramp up a global vaccine distribution. As long as the virus is replicating somewhere, it's likely to be mutating. So we have to get ahead of this. But right now, less than 11 percent of people around the world are fully vaccinated. In the U.S., more than 46 percent of people have been fully vaccinated, but Alabama, Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi and Wyoming are among the states with the lowest vaccination rates. And those are going to be the more vulnerable parts of this country. It's going to be hyper-regionalized. There are certain pockets of the country where you can have very dense outbreaks. In other words, fewer vaccinations could mean more outbreaks. At this church camp, the Crossing Camp, in rural Illinois, 85 people who were there earlier this month, most of them teens, tested positive for COVID-19. The State Department of Public Health says everyone there was eligible to be vaccinated, but they were aware of only a handful of campers and staff receiving the vaccine. The way out of this crisis is through vaccinations. Either you get vaccinated and you're exposed, so you're protected, or you don't get vaccinated and you're exposed and you get COVID and you take your chances. This is Grecia Lassera reporting for You News. And people in Pennsylvania no longer need to wear a mask. The state lifting its mask mandate one minute after midnight early this morning. As of last Friday, nearly 75% of Pennsylvanians have received their first dose and 59% were fully vaccinated. The mask mandate had been in place since April 15th of last year, but there are still instances where you'll need to wear a mask. Certain businesses and organizations may require it, regardless of vaccination status. That goes for planes, trains, buses, and all forms of mass transit, too. The Department of Health in the Keystone State encouraging anyone who hasn't been vaccinated to still wear a mask in public. And meanwhile, for thousands across the country, the coronavirus pandemic has taken a severe toll. The loss of one or more parents. Ingrid Rojas has more on their stories. You have all these thoughts that drive you crazy. Life as this 20-year-old young man knew it suddenly changed in two weeks. These are his parents walking. Both contracted COVID and it cost them their lives. I don't know. It's triste, pero no es. I don't know, it's sad, but not like the first days when I only cried and cried. 52-year-old Ernesto Lemus worked in a pizzeria. Sandra, his wife, was 49. His children, 20 and 18 years old. I tried to think about what I'm going to do, but everything is cloudy. I can't think clearly. A dilemma that 46,000 young people under 21 who have lost a parent during the pandemic are trying to manage. I believe that in the near future, we're going to see many children with post-traumatic symptoms similar to people coming home from war. They all have COVID. It's estimated that for every 13 people who died from COVID, there is one young orphan left behind. In the case of the Lemus family, they live on donations. People so far have contributed as little as $10, raising close to $100,000 to help them pay for their studies and continue on with their lives. At the school, they're helping me, and they also have a lawyer helping. Others are less fortunate. Reported by Blanca Rosa Vilches in Weehawken, New Jersey, this is Ingrid Rojas for Unions. 
Thanks for listening to You News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow You News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to your favorite podcast platform and subscribe, rate, and review. Join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.